If I accomplished nothing on this earth but getting Walter Colmays to change his Twitter handle to the great tit, I could I would die a happy person in the middle of a fascist pandemic. It's Friday, September the 25th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Gordon Derrick, Dutch News Contributing Editor and Honorary Citizen of the Republic of Kent, and with me today are Dutch News Contributing Editor and Early Morning Sand Person Molly Quell and Paul Peters, Master Student in Civil Engineering and Sworn Adversary of the Y-Axis of Evil. <laughs> So, <laughs> uh, I I am very curious what that Kent thing is about. Yeah, tell us about this. About I Kent. I think I sort of know. This is, uh, it, um, well, this is about what's happened this week with... Uh, this is another Brexit story. I'm sorry to bore, bore everyone with Brexit, <laughs> but Brexit is my life now. So, it's so tough. Um, but uh, yeah, what's happened is that um, everyone warned that uh, Brexit was going to break up the United Kingdom. What we didn't know was that the first bit to go was going to be Kent. Because... Uh, <laughs> What's happened this week is that the uh, uh, the transport secretary Michael Gove has uh, said that uh, because um, of uh, the all the customs checks are going to have at the border Kent, which is the part of uh, England which is right next to France where you cross from Dover, for people who don't know England that well, um, is is going to have to have a border which is going to be policed, and that truckers who drive through Kent will need special permits in order to enter Kent. From which is right next to London, which well, which, yeah. which borders the outskirts of London. So there'll be a border, basically, uh, with, with effectively a border between England and the European Union, right outside London. Which, uh, and uh, really, the, are the they going to border? Well, the, the, they're going yeah, to. You have they, to. What else are you going to do? Yeah, it is effectively it's a it's a border for goods. Basically, okay, you know, um, you know, they're going to have to uh, because they're actually going to have to. The issue of have a permit system for um, for trucks for goods deliveries, and that means they're going to have to police the border to check that you know other unauthorized trucks are not going through. So effectively, they're going to have a manned border in inside inside England, which is going to be in order to facilitate the um, the transport of goods to the European Union. So Kent is going Kent is going to become part of France, basically. Or it's going to become an independent republic. My worst, my, my worst, my biggest worry about this actually is what's going to happen is that Scotland are going to lose to Kent in their next World Cup qualifying group. <laughs> I can see it happening now. <laughs> I yeah. mean, this <laughs> that, that would, Brexit that, would be worth it to see that. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> that would be a very unsurprising uh, effect yeah. of Brexit. It's, yeah, it's totally predictable. Yeah. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, but so. I'm sure they're gonna just put a fence at the end of the canal tunnel right or are they just literally going to close kent off next well the to thing is it's going to be, there's going to be what they warned of is there's going to be queues of about seven thousand trucks going right through kent all the way up the motorway uh, um yeah, so, so they, they want to have the checks heading into kent rather than having this enormous um yeah, truckers just sitting there for days in their cabs waiting to cross into france so that, that yeah. that's how they think they're going to solve it but ultimately but but in, in a way it kind of fixes uh, my dilemma of um, how to stay in the European Union um, and the UK to, to just move to Kent and uh, establish yeah. it as an in- independent republic. Kent is Schrodinger's yeah. European, <laughs> Schrodinger's, Schrodinger's UK, Schrodinger's European <laughs> Union. Like, wh- I'm not sure yeah. what the exact analogy is here. Schrodinger's but basically, there's a, maybe there's a dead cat in a box in Kent. Yeah. Huh. It's both in yeah. the EU and not in the EU. Right. Yeah. Even, though it vo- even though I voted to leave. Yeah. <laughs> I, I appreciate the irony of that. So there we are. Um, yeah, uh, Paul, you, you've been uh, talking about uh, graphs again. Yeah. So I have been, and uh, th- it's all the fault of Thierry Baudin. 
Of course. Because he, um, at the Algemene Beschouwingen last week, he, he brought with him a bunch of graphs, which he showed to everyone who was present there, even though the graphs were so small that nobody could possibly see them. But a couple of days later, he showed them again in one of his YouTube videos, uh, and you could read them better now. So uh, I took a closer look at it, and it turned out that all of his graphs were very misleading, uh, not horror. to say manipulative. Um, why is that? Because he trunca truncated his y-axis to uh, exaggerate the trends that he uh, wanted to point out. Yeah. Basically, he brought these graphs, he made these graphs to, to show that um, 10 years of Mark Rutte as prime minister was devastating for the country. So, for example, he, he brought a graph uh, with him that showed uh, the number of farmers in the Netherlands starting mm. from 2010 uh, until now. Uh, and in this graph, it starts at the uh, top left corner and it just goes down to the bottom right corner, mm -hmm. um, which suggests that there are no farmers left in the Netherlands because of Mark Rutte. But yeah. if you take a very good look at his graph, then you see that his y-axis does not start with zero as all normal graphs do. Mm -hmm. No, it starts with 55,000 and it ends with 75,000. So indeed, there is a decline in, in, in the number of farmers in the Netherlands, 20,000. That's a substantial amount but not as much as he uh, yeah. suggested there was. Yeah. So um, I pointed that out that he uh, presented his facts in a misleading way because, you know, the whole point of a graph is that in, in one eyesight you see, you can see how, you know, the data develops. Uh, and by truncating a y-axis, you distort that. Uh, and then there were these FAD um, uh, fanboys who commented, no, this is just a normal way of presenting a graph, and it's just a matter of, of representation. And yeah, indeed, it's a matter of representation. It's a, And you've represented it badly. Yes. Yeah, that's, indeed. That's what happened. <laughs> so... Um, so yeah, I'm now. I I already was the crusader of CO two, yeah, uh, and now I'm also the crusader of the y axis. Yeah, of the zero y axis. Yeah. yeah. Paul, you're really starting to get an embarrassing reputation. <laughs> <laughs> these, these are not popular causes that are going to get you no, on the front page of Telegraph. Yeah. No. Yeah, it's not the way to go. You're never going to get an invite to go on Unec with this kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. you know. For sure. No, true. And uh, Molly, why you on some kind of crusade to get as uh, to get uh, as many tasks done as possible before breakfast? For some reason. So what's I what's going on? I'm so <laughs> fucking mad at this table situation, <laughs> guys. I'm so mad. I'm so mad. We're gonna have to cut this rant out. I think and put it at the end because we're gonna be here for about ten to twelve minutes while I take you through the emotional journey that is this table. So basically. I think two years ago at Christmas, our, my in-laws offered to buy us a new dining room table and chairs because we had moved into our new house. And the dining room table and chairs that we had, which we had gotten for free, um, <laughs> would, do not fit in our current dining room. So we wanted a new dining room table and chairs. And then we were walking home one night with the dog at like 10 p.m. And we found a dining room table and chair set that we thought was perfect. <laughs> So we brought it home and it is perfect. It is exactly the right size. What it is not is the right color. So I wanted to refinish this, which like I've refinished a lot of furniture in our house. This is not my first time with this project. Um, the problem is I'm not going to get into the technical details because nobody goddamn cares about that. But basically the wood is a wood in such a way that it is extremely difficult to get stain on in a way that is not blotchy. So I have sanded and stained and sanded and stained and sanded and stained the mm. leaves of this table it, it sort of it expands 
about 27 million fucking times. <laughs> and I've, because I do not have an indoor workshop, uh, because this is the <laughs> Netherlands and houses are tiny, I have to do this outside. And because this is the Netherlands and it rains all the goddamn time, I only have a limited amount of time when I can do this. So I've been basically stalking the like four hours of sun that I have oh, hang on, to I'm, go I'm, outside, I'm just gonna interrupt set up all here. the stuff, sand it. <laughs> what? What, Gordon, what? How many times has it rained in the last two weeks, actually? <laughs> a lot. No, it, it hasn't. Out. <laughs> it's well, rained about once, and that was at midnight. Because I've been waiting no, for the no, good... Oh, no, no, I, no, no, I, no, I no, 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 plants Yesterday, every single day. Yesterday, two days ago, <laughs> I got soaking drenched wet because the skies basically opened up while I was outside during my lunch break, sanding this fucking table. <laughs> anyway, after all of this drama, we've basically concluded <laughs> that it's just not going to be possible to do what we want. And... Yesterday, when we were on the phone with my mother-in-law, she says that she is tired of listening to me complain about this table process, and she's buying us a fucking dining room table and chairs, and we are instructed to go this weekend and buy one. So, that is the situation. You've actually driven her to buy you a, a set of dining room table and chairs just to, just to keep you quiet. Just to keep me quiet. Yeah. I mean, it was her original Christmas present offered to us, but she does not want to hear any more things about finding nothing secondhand, nothing on the side of the road. We are instructed to go to a, what, I don't even remember what she said, a Ikea. normal furniture store <laughs> and buy a dining You, you live in Delft. Shit. There's an Ikea. You have no excuse. I have no sympathy. I know. <laughs> this is this is a, entirely a problem of my own making. Exactly. And I regret literally everything about yeah, it. Yeah, you, 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 yeah. You, I, I have as much sympathy for you with your furniture as I have for Hugo de Jonga and the coronavirus uh, infection rate. But. <laughs> this is fair. That, those two things are analogous, and I will not fight you on this. Yes. But, but Molly, have you ever heard of the app Bauerradar? Uh, yes, but it's n it doesn't work. It's terrible. <laughs> the weather in this country is not able to be predicted, which is why I got soaking wet on Wednesday, because Bauerrotter said I was going to have an hour of clear skies, and I went outside, got the whole goddamn thing set up, all of this other stuff, plugged everything in, and literally the skies opened up and dumped on me. <laughs> I was soaking wet. Okay, uh, if you want to listen to Molly's rant, which we clearly need to cut out, then, uh, listen to the end of the podcast. Yeah, you just have to listen yeah. to the end. That's fine. Yeah. Listen right to the end. Yeah. In the meantime, uh, we'll crack on uh, straight away with the op of the week, which features uh, well a return, lots of lots of comebacks this week, and we have a comeback for uh, the king of op-ef. Um So, Paul, uh, take it away. Yeah, we already uh, mentioned him, none other than Thierry Baudet, because his week was absolutely filled with op-ef. I think there were four or five op-efs, and we can't possibly discuss them all. So we're just trying to squeeze them in at everywhere we can. Um, but indeed, Thierry Baudet is back with uh, another set of ophef. The first ophef he was involved with had to do with uh, a philosophy class at the Haagse Hogeschool in The Hague. Uh, in the, there was a 12-second uh, long video uh, published on uh, Twitter. And in it, uh, a philosophy teacher can be heard asking the question to her students that if one would be allowed to kill Adolf Hitler, why wouldn't one be allowed to kill, for example, Donald Trump or Thierry Baudet? Um, the video was shared by Thierry Baudet on Twitter, who claimed it was just another example of left-wing propaganda at Dutch colleges. Uh, others said the video was simply too short to accurately judge the philosophy teacher. Uh, and it was also pointed out that when Sid Lukasser, a prominent FDA party member, um, openly talked about the necessity of a civil war in the Netherlands a couple of months ago, the party's response was that his comments were only meant as a philosophical question, an excuse that apparently doesn't count in an actual philosophy class it's so ironic because Baudet sort of 
points himself to be some sort of brilliant philosopher. And yet when philosophical questions are posed, he becomes a snowflake who needs a safe space. (laughs) Indeed. Um, and more ophef came to light this week about Baudet. Uh, magazine De Groene Amsterdammer revealed that U.S. Ambassador Piet Hoekstra had hosted a fundraising event for Cherry Baudet's party at the U.S. Embassy in Wassenaar. Forty guests, mostly wealthy entrepreneurs and other prominent party members, were served chicken and hamburgers at the embassy. Other politicians have criticized the event. Uh, it was suggested the fundraising was a breach of the 1961 Treaty of Vienna. And also GroenLinks MP Bram van Oyek even called it an interference in Dutch politics by the United States. Um, the embassy and Baudet denied the barbecue was a fundraising event, even though the invitations were sent by the party's head of fundraising. Uh, and also the foreign affairs minister Sigrid Kaag had asked the embassy to clarify the allegations, uh, but they assured her nothing inappropriate had happened. And Kaag has said that she uh, believes the U.S. ambassador. I don't believe the U.S. ambassador, but that might be because he's <laughs> called me a liar and unprofessional to my face. So mm. that's. But, but was yeah. that a lie? And not in that particular situation. <laughs> okay. <laughs> then, then it's fair enough. So, yeah. so Vassanar is not a no-go area, then. Uh, we can establish that. Uh, well, it is a no-go <laughs> area for uh, for people who want to donate for parties. Uh, well, that's true. Yeah. 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 And poor people, also. Yeah. And poor don't, people. Don't forget yeah, about that. True. Yeah. I also just like the idea that Baudet, with his uh, uh, well-professed uh, hatred of um, um, ugly modern architecture, held his fundraiser in probably the ugliest building in the whole of the Netherlands, which is the new U.S. embassy in Vassana. <laughs> Do you think it's that ugly? It's pretty awful. Is it uglier yeah. than the Gaudi, Soviet Gaudi building, though? What do we think? In a different I'd, way, I think. It's hard to hard to compare the two. I, I don't think the, the new US embassy is that ugly. The old US embassy building was, was terrible, uh, uh, I think, in the city center of The Hague. But I don't think the new one is that bad. But maybe I haven't looked at it. Uh, or maybe I, I, your <laughs> eyes are just blinded by having to see the uh, ex gemeente swimming pool wannabe monstrosity in Delft on a regular basis. <laughs> I'm not wrong. This week, COVID-19 is back, just in time for autumn. We try to make you care more about the start of the election campaign, and Mark Rutte is mad at football fans. Plus, MPs fight back against the real plague of the Netherlands, the spread of Airbnb. To the surprise of absolutely nobody except Mark Rutte and Hugo de Jonge, the coronavirus second wave was confirmed this week. The number of infections passed 2,500 a day on Thursday, and by the time you get round to listening to this podcast, we may well have hit the 3,000 mark. And while in August the government said everything was okay because the hospital wards were quiet, serious cases are on the rise too. That's mainly because the number of infections is slowing down in the 20-29 age group, but rising among the over 50s. 106 people are currently in intensive care with COVID-19, and 16 deaths were recorded in the 24 hours to Thursday lunchtime. If these figures sound eerily familiar, it's because they're very similar to the numbers on March the 17th, when 19 people died and 136 were in intensive care. That was the day Mark Rutter gave his television address promising a strategy of maximum control, whereas now we're just leaving the bars open. I mean, I like the bars being open. Yeah, but so does coronavirus. That's a problem. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> Anyway, so has the government taken any hard-hitting measures, Gordon? Well, as you said, uh, bars in the Ransat are closing an hour earlier. And they're switching the music. Really, it's terrible for me. It's awful. Yeah, I sympathize. Yeah. And, and they're switching the music off at midnight. Because apparently the virus just loves to party, so it goes home in a huff if it can't hear on the houses. 
or or uh, dire straits. Or dire straits. See, this is the thing. See, I find it. More, I would go to a bar at midnight if I knew it was guaranteed that you would not listen to dire straits for a whole hour. I mean, that, that makes it more appealing. So this is really your this is your niche market here, Gordon. But that wouldn't work for the Dutch people because we love dire straits. Yeah, that's the thing. No, yeah. so, so maybe it's going to work. I don't know. Gatherings are being limited to fifty people, but there are exemptions for demonstrations, funerals, religious gatherings, and pretty much anything that actually involves more than fifty people, <laughs> except for weddings or circle parties. <laughs> Plus, there's the usual rules about washing your hands regularly, keeping one and a half metres apart from other people, and getting tested if you have symptoms. Uh, but everyone's given up on those rules weeks ago, except for the testing rule, which you just can't get a test even if you want one, unless you're a teacher, healthcare worker, or police officer. Local health services admitted this week that 100,000 people a day were being turned away from test centres, and the tests are now being shipped out to laboratories in Germany, Belgium, and Abu Dhabi. So they'll either you'll have to wait either four days for your test to come back by plane from Abu Dhabi, or halt three weeks for it to come back by road from Belgium. <laughs> Most local health boards have abandoned active contact tracing because of the surging cases and are just leaving it to patients to tell their friends and relatives that they might have the virus and you might want to stay indoors for a bit. And in the most unsurprising news of the week, the Track and Trace app is delayed again until mid-October because MPs and senators have lots of questions about it. Yeah, we all have questions about it. <laughs> yeah, it's the, not just MPs and senators. The most pressing question is... Why does it take so long? <laughs> yeah, um, well, why is an app that you're supposed to that, that you promised to deliver in July still not ready? And we've got to the point now where even the UK has got its act together sooner than the Netherlands. Yeah, which, that's um, that's I, bad. Yeah, yeah, which is always a sign that things are going drastically, drastically wrong. Yeah, yeah, but the the testing capacity is really a problem. I heard people uh, who live in Zeeuws uh, Vlaanderen who uh, requested the test and were told to go to Zwaar, which is uh, uh, yeah, the northern tip of of the province of North, uh, North Holland. So yeah, that's uh, what is it? Yeah. Two and a half, three hours yeah. drive away or something. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, that's that's just ridiculous. No, it's just, it's just kind of unravelled. And I think yeah. uh, back in the early summer, that the, they did seem to be handling it well, but they just didn't keep going. You know, they, they didn't. And everyone said, so many people said, you know, watch, expect a second wave in the autumn. And it turns out there've been no preparations for a second mm-hmm. wave. And now it's the autumn, and we got the second wave. So. Yeah. I think the thing I find the most frustrating about this is that there doesn't really clear it seem to be a clear answer why they're having so many problems. Like, if it was just one thing, if it was, like, just the app, maybe mm. you would be blaming it on, like, I don't know, apps being difficult to develop. But it just seems to be everything, and there does not seem to be a clear explanation as to why these things the Netherlands is struggling with so much, whereas other countries seem to be able to get them together. Like, is it incompetence in the political system? Is there underlying structural things about the society or the economy that make these things difficult? Nobody seems to have any idea. No, it just seems like everybody went on holiday in July and August and didn't keep an eye on the situation. And then when they came back, they thought, oh, they, they, they took fright and said, oh, look, the, 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 the infections have gone up again. But it doesn't matter because yeah. the, there's not many people being admitted to hospital. But of course, OK, it was circulating among young people at that point And there weren't too many serious infections. But it was only really a matter of time before it started to spread to other uh, age groups. And sure enough, that's what's happened. Well, and of course, as long as the transmissions are up, even amongst young people, people are not willing to do the things that keeps the economy going, which means you've got people unemployed, people underemployed, people who are unwilling to like leave the house. I mean, even if it's even if this disease only impacted 18 to 25 year olds the whole time, you still are going to have this problem because I don't have any way of ins- like knowing what the age of the person is working at the Albert Hein cashier. Mm-hmm. Spoiler alert, they're probably an 18 to 25 year old or, you know, all of these other things. So, of course, it keeps you from doing, like, engaging in your normal life in any way. 
Yeah, I think uh, also one of the bigger problems here is that a lot of people just gave up following the rules. We we, we talked about it in, in our group chat. If you take a look at, for example, the supermarkets, uh, every one of us said uh, in our supermarkets, it's a mess. Everybody mm. just walks around, is, are not paying attention to keep their distances from each other. Uh, 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 that's mostly because so many people are allowed inside, probably. Um, Except for the tiny, tiny little grocery store right by my house, which is run by a guy who... Is it? Is it a German uh, yoga instructor? It's, yeah, he, he was my Dutch boyfriend, who's much nicer and more patient than I could ever hope to aspire to be. Um, refers to him as like the the grocery store Nazi basically <laughs> because he's so strict with enforcing the rules. So that's good. I mean, you we, you can go shopping there. I mean, their their prices are crazy high and their selection is terrible because it's a tiny grocery store, but you you can get stuff without getting corona. Yeah, exactly. You, 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 <laughs> that's you'll a plus stay side. safe and you can't put a price on that these days. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but it does feel like everyone uh, sort of got this the, the sense kind of developed and was encouraged over the um, over the summer that it was over and you know, we had yeah. infections under control and we didn't need to adhere to the rules anymore. And then of course the justice minister went and had his wedding and uh, just didn't bother at all and uh, Yeah. You know, yeah. and that's a problem because as soon as that happened, of course, um, the the Boas, the community wardens, stopped really enforcing the rules and stopped speaking to people in the street because they kind of felt like they, they, they couldn't really. You know, the, the, the whole rationale had been undermined. But also, the public thought if they already if they, if they didn't already do that, they thought, why should I keep my distance if exactly. the if the justice minister is not doing it? So yeah. yeah. Which are all very fair points. Like, I don't blame any of these people, either the Boas or the people who say, who look at this and say, yeah, I mean, what's the point of, of keeping to the rules? Well, I do blame them because we are still in a, in a, in a global pandemic. But yeah. I don't blame them for um, uh, having this feeling uh, of, yeah. Uh, yeah, why should I? Uh, but there are also some new regional measures announced, aren't there? Yes, because uh, last week six of the uh, GGD health board regions were classed as concerning on the government's new three-stage alert system, uh, runs from one to three. Uh, that includes all the four major cities and a number of university towns because the rising cases seems to be linked to students going back to college and student accommodation. Eight more of the 25 regions are likely to be added to the list in the next few days. Uh, local measures include closing parks at night to stop illegal parties, stepping up surveillance and information campaigns for students and religious communities. There's also special opening hours in some places for vulnerable groups uh, at libraries and swimming pools, and shops will be encouraged to do the same thing. And loudspeakers and musical instruments are banned from the beach at Zandford. So... Okay. What? Are there a lot of people playing musical instruments on the beach at Zandvoort? Apparently there are, yeah. Is that spreading coronavirus? <laughs> well, I guess it's the idea that people start singing, uh, clustering together and singing along and drinking. And uh, yeah, that's uh, apparently a problem. I don't know. I don't go to the beach at Zandvoort. My, my theory is that there are still so many people at Zandvoort Beach. It's, be it's because they haven't uh, been able to catch a train yet uh, yeah. back to yeah. Amsterdam <laughs> to get home. summer. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they went for the Grand Prix and they still haven't been able to get back. So is there any good news anywhere at um, all? Um, well, um, the, the, no. two numbers are worth, no. No, two numbers <laughs> that are worth watching, possibly, um, that might be early indicators that uh, things have, are approaching the peak. Uh, the, the R number, the reproductive, uh, the, the calculation that virologists do as to how fast the virus is reproducing is kind of stalled. It's flatlined in the last few weeks at about 1.3, which is obviously too high. It needs to get down below 1 
Yeah, but there is also a delay in the calculation of the R numbers. There is also a so, delay. It's yeah. also two weeks behind. But the, the, we have now got, um, it is up to, what, September the 8th, so the, the point at which infections had started to rise. So it might be, so, so it is, it's just a, over the next couple of weeks, uh, if, it, if it continues to flatline, then maybe that's an encouraging sign. Yeah. And the other thing is, I mean, the amount of virus in the sewage system, which is one of these things, uh, good things the Dutch government has done, the, the, the one thing they have done is, is, is collected an awful lot of data about the virus, and they have a hundred uh, monitoring stations in the waterworks, and um, to, to assess how much virus is actually uh, people are um, yeah um, excreting. I see um, that that number more than doubled last week, but last but um, uh, two weeks ago, but last week it increased by about twenty percent. So slowing down, and if that again, it's just a thing to watch. So I can't give you good news, but maybe some less cataclysmic news. That's mm. that's the best I can offer. Also, good news, of course, for Fred Krapperhaus, the aforementioned Justice Minister, because um, he won't get a criminal record now because they've changed the rules. <laughs> yeah. to say that, yeah, yeah. Why would that be? I, mean, <laughs> I, I have questions about whether or not the Netherlands is becoming a banana republic, <laughs> which puts me in the same camp as Kurt Wilders, which is not a place I want to be. I don't think no. we mentioned this on the podcast last week, but Fred Rapperhaus was, uh, after all, fined for not keeping his distance oh, yeah. on his wedding. Uh, yeah. And that meant that um, b- because a coronavirus... Uh, social distancing fine uh, would would automatically lead to a criminal record. It would yeah. mean that we would have an actual justice minister with a criminal record. But now yeah. the the cabinet decided that uh, yeah they will um, scrap all the uh, uh, criminal records uh, uh, caused by coronavirus fines. So yeah. that's so, a good thing so for uh, for Vertrapperhuis. Yeah, it is actually a sensible measure. I think. I think it's a bit ridiculous to be um, to have it marked your criminal record that you didn't yeah, keep social distancing. This. But the, the the way it's come about is a bit. Um yeah, yeah, it stinks a bit. Yeah, it has okay. to do with the fact that uh, over a certain uh, uh, amount of uh, of euros for a fine, it automatically leads to a criminal record. Doesn't yeah. mean that you won't be able to get a job somewhere, only if it's relevant for your job. But yeah, yeah still, it's uh, it's it's a uh, it, it, it is a little bit of an exaggeration, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because a fine is three hundred and ninety euros, which again is. Uh, pretty steep for a lot of people if you're just as much no okay, but other people no <laughs> indeed <laughs> the dutch government has allocated 1.4 billion euros to help those who lose or have lost their jobs due to the coronavirus the money will be spent on regional teams made up of local government officials experts from the state unemployment offices uvv unions and employers social affairs minister walter colmays aka the great tit told MPs in a briefing this week. Sorry, the what? The what? The great tit? Uh, yeah, this, this was name, that's what a name means. Oh, is it? Okay, I, I, I missed that joke. Sorry. How? I mean, the great tit was going to be our savior if something happened during Princhestach, because he was the designated survivor. He was the designated survivor. He, he was the great tit in the coal mine. <laughs> ah, yeah, now now I also understand that joke in, uh, in retrospect. Thank you for explaining this to me. You are welcome. I'm here for obscure bird slash Dutch political references. <laughs> the cabinet wants to help people facing uncertainty, the security of knowing they can call on someone appropriate to help them find a new job and a source of income, Colme said. MPs also debated more measures to help industry this week as well. Meanwhile, those who still have jobs aren't exactly having an easy go of it. Social affairs ministry inspectors have received over 3,000 complaints about coronavirus-related working conditions, uh, mostly centered on safety issues. Despite the widespread belief of our followers on Twitter, the Netherlands does, in fact, have measures in place to combat the coronavirus.
coronavirus, including maintaining social distancing and allowing people to work from home as much as possible. In 7% of the cases, the inspectors have either fully or partially closed down a company pending improvements, and 3% of cases have resulted in a fine for failure to comply with the rules. It's still six months to go before the general elections in March 2021, but most parties already have decided on who will be their frontrunner, and now slowly but steadily they are publishing their party manifestos. This week, D66 and the Socialist Party released their plans for the Netherlands for the coming four years. Uh, Prime Minister Mark Rutte's VVD party has not yet published its manifesto, but hinted that a call for more nuclear power plants will be a major part of their campaign. Um, well, let's start with D66. Their manifesto is called A New Beginning, and in it the party, whose leader is Sigrid Kaag, is opting for an increase in wind energy. Uh, the party also wants a free childcare and a new grant system for higher education students. And following the child benefit scandal, D66 also wants to get rid of the toeslagen system and replace it with a negative income tax, which um, apparently effectively means a sort of basic income for lower income groups. So I think Molly is very happy now. Um, I'm into it. And D66 also pledges to build a million houses by 2035. That sounds like a lot, but it's only 75,000 houses more than the current cabinet's plan to build. Uh, and less than the interior minister thinks is necessary. Interior minister, who is, by the way, of D66, but that's a different story. Uh, the stickstoff emission of all this building will have to be compensated by reducing the face staple by half. And I'm going to ask you to translate face staple because I don't know how to translate that. The, the, the cattle herd. So, uh, yeah, less cows, more houses that seems like a like a good tagline for the they what is what is their actual boring ass a new beginning tagline? yeah i know they should have less cows more houses oh like that's their tagline yeah um their party manifesto is 212 pages long or at least the dutch one they also published an english version but that's only with uh with bullet points i believe it's uh six pages long or something so I envy the english-speaking persons because they don't have to read all these uh, <laughs> 200 uh, plus pages you don't have to either, Paul. I have to do this because I have to be informed for this podcast, of course. We're not in a liberal <laughs> dictature. You're not forced to read Desus Manifesto. I mean, he is in this podcast. He is forced to read it. Yes. I mean, as a citizen, he's not. I didn't read it. I have no idea what it says. But Paul, Paul had to read. Indeed. What I also read is the Socialist Party Manifesto. Oh, God. Why? <laughs> because I am a professional journalist and I have to do this. Uh, the Socialist Party is led by Lilian Marijnissen. And even though it seems that she has been uh, uh, the party leader since forever, it is actually the first time that she uh, will be leading the party in a parliamentary election. That, uh, the SP wants to give workers more say in important decisions taken by companies, such as the level of salaries for the top executives. And they also want them to give a share of the profits. So that's uh, that's nice. Sounds very socialist. Yeah, yeah, I'm. I'm not sure if if they also have to share in losses uh, uh, of companies. But party wants to get rid of uh, market forces in healthcare and establish a single payer healthcare system, which they call the National Care Fund. Uh, the SP also wants the pension age to go back to 65 years, and the minimum age minimum wage should also go up to 14 euros. Uh, last but not least, uh, SP also wants to abol abolish the euro and go back to the guilder. Uh, 
uh, they didn't specify which uh, currency they want to go back to, but I assume they want to go back to the guilder. Yeah. So yeah, uh, the the funny thing about the about the SP is that a lot of parties are taking over one of their talking uh, several of their talking points that they had for the past years. For example, uh, the SP was the only party that always kept saying that uh, the market should be uh, should get out of the healthcare system, and now all the parties are saying that as well. Even the favorite day is saying this, but nonetheless, the SP is not really. Uh, benefiting from uh, from this change of attitudes by the other parties, they are still, uh, yeah, uh, still uh, uh, they still see a reduction in, of of seats in the polls. So uh, next, the Favor Day party, uh, they uh, also doesn't officially have selected their leader for the general elections yet. Uh, I wonder, yeah. I wonder who it's going to be. <laughs> Can't imagine. It's probably no clue. It's probably Margaret, but. It's not official yet, um, and they haven't pu- uh, published their party manifesto. The elections are still six months away, but uh, it's always interesting to look at the polls and uh, how the parties are standing. The VVD party is the only coalition party that has increased in the polls right now. They had 33 seats in 2017, and they're now polled to have 40 seats, so that's an increase of seven uh, seats. We're using, by the way, the poll of polls, which combine five or six uh, uh, polls into an uh, into a weighted average. And uh, the other coalition uh, parties, CDA, De Sester, are at a loss. Uh, CDA is going from 19 seats to 14 seats, and De Sester uh, as well, from 19 seats to... Oh, 12 seats, by the way, sorry. Although, although the Christian the Christen Uni is still is also forecast yeah, to pick up yeah, one or from, two as well. From, from five to party. seven, so that's uh, it's also interesting. Usually, um, one of the rule of thumbs in, in Dutch politics is that if you join a coalition, then uh, your seat number will get halved in the next elections. Um, so if you if you take that into account, then all the coalition parties are uh, doing pretty well uh, in the polls, and especially the Favor Day, they 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 are going up, and the and the Christen as well. So that's also pretty curious. But uh, I have to say the the poll of polls is updated last time at September 11th so um, it's two weeks behind and uh, how the coronavirus um, crisis is unraveling uh, that will definitely um, uh, lead to a, to a, to an effect in the polls but yeah we don't know yet how that will uh, turn out. I think it's interesting to see as well that over the last uh, since coronavirus started um, uh, at the start of the coronavirus rather um, uh, Thierry Baudet was doing quite well on the right and Geert Wilders seemed to be fading and now that's it, has been reversed and Wilders made a comeback. Yeah, yeah, indeed. But I think uh, uh, we we also on this podcast uh, often has said that PVV basically Geert uh, Wilders had lost his his um, his fire, his magic. He he clearly um, uh, is doing much better right now uh, in the polls than uh, we 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 imagined uh, six months ago. Yeah, I, I, th- I think rule number one of Dutch politics is you write Geert Wilders off at your peril. He's he's got real staying power, you know. He's 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 been through a lot of dips and crises where he seems to be written off. He always manages to come back, and um, it's happened again. Uh, and what's also curious to see is that the PVDA is um, doing pretty well compared to their result in 2017. They're going from nine seats to uh, to 11 to 15 seats. Uh, so yeah, they are they are picking up more seats right now. But if you compare it to how they were doing before 2017, they had 33 or 34 seats or something. Yeah, it's still there's still nothing uh, compared to uh, how, how they how they used to be doing. So uh, if you add all the uh, seats that uh, the coalition parties are, you know, if you have to make a, a coalition based on uh, on these numbers. 
then uh, there is uh, only four party coalitions can be made, but there are several of them that can be made. So, for example, VVD could uh, team up with the PVV and the FVD and one other right wing party, and then you have a coalition there. But the VVD could also go left wing and um, uh, form a coalition with CDA, D66, perhaps with the uh, PVDA or with GroenLinks. Uh, and then you also have a majority. So uh, there's a lot of room to negotiate. Well, maybe we will see uh, another four years of Mark Rutte as prime minister. Government plans to regulate holiday home rentals do not go far enough in dealing with Airbnb and Booking.com, MPs said during a debate this week. A law to regulate online home letting websites was drawn up by Home Affairs Minister Kasia Olenkron and requires people renting out their homes to register with their local authority. But it does not require rental agencies to include that registration number on their adverts. MPs, however, voted in favor of amending the legislation during Tuesday's debate and requiring Airbnb and others to include the registration number in their listings. This, MPs say, means council officials will know exactly which properties to check if complaints are being made about noise or illegal letting. Amsterdam Housing Chief Lawrence Ivins described the amended legislation as a, quote, breakthrough and said, quote, for the first time, rental platforms like Airbnb will be held responsible for their listings. MPs also voted in favor of increasing the fine for owners who do not register their properties as holiday rentals to 8,700 euros, and all of Amsterdam has rejoiced. Yeah, I think they are really happy with this. (laughs) Yeah, I think so too. Whether you're an occasional tourist in Amsterdam or a robber baron expat landlord, if you're enjoying our efforts to keep you up to date with what's going on in the Netherlands, why not sponsor us on Patreon? All new patrons get a shout out in the next podcast and the chance to ask us a question. If you can't think of a question, you can just say nice things about us, that's fine as well. This week, we welcome new patron Barry Johnson, who brings the total number of listeners in the tiny town of Minneapolis. That's not my words, that's what uh, another resident said about it. Brings the total number of listeners in Minneapolis to three. Why do we have so many people in I Minneapolis? I have no idea. What's I think we should on? start. To, we should actually need to open a branch office if we get any more. <laughs> yeah. Barry informs us uh, Minneapolis is, in fact, not that large. The twin cities of which it is a part have a total population of around 3.6 million, but Minneapolis is about 400,000 and St. Paul 300,000. That's, that's a lot compared to, uh, to Dutch standards. Exactly. This yeah. is still about the size of Utrecht, yeah. which, you know, we think is a metropolis over here. Yeah. Yeah. So just uh, underlines the fact that we're kind of a Maduro Dam country by the, yeah. <laughs> uh, compared to the United yeah. States. By American standards. I'm curious if uh, if our listeners from Minneapolis realizes that uh, 400k inhabitants of a city is just one of the major cities in, in the Netherlands. Utrecht is the fourth largest city in the Netherlands. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, Barry goes on, I won't bore you with the details, but there are actually over a hundred suburbs here. We even have suburbs which are enclaves of other suburbs, which I've always found a bit crazy. Oh, so they have their very own Barla Nassau? <laughs> Basically, yeah. Ah. It's like the, the American Barla Nassau. Yeah. I didn't think I'd ever describe somewhere as more chaotic than Brussels, but this is a strong <laughs> contender. So... Thanks again for your support, Barry. Uh, if you'd like to join our gang of sponsors, whether or not you live in Minneapolis, log on to www.patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl. But I have a question. Does every one of these 100 suburbs have their own municipality or their own administrative um, body? Or is it uh, just a, a neighborhood? No, probably all of them have their own like local city council mayor situation. Okay, then it is indeed more chaotic than Brussels. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, at least everybody only basically only speaks English. That's true. Yeah. That makes it slightly less yeah. chaotic than Brussels. Prime Minister Mark Rutte has told football fans to keep their mouths shut 
at matches after supporters at several weekend games ignored the ban on chanting. The Eredivisie match... Bet- what, what did he say in, in Dutch exactly? He said, gewoon je bek houden. Did he then say, en, en befme? No, 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 you shouldn't say that, Molly. You, you know, can only sing that. disappointing. <laughs> ah, okay, fair enough. Yeah. Which is illegal in football it's stadiums, true, so true, he really yeah. shouldn't be doing that. Um, I think keep your mouth shut doesn't really... Doesn't have the same connotation as calling your back out, I think. Yeah, it's just kind of more like keep your trap shut or keep your gob shut yeah, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. Quite, yeah. Two, two. yeah. Some people suggested it was shut the fuck up, but that's going that's too strong. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's strong. a bit too yeah. far, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. indeed. Yeah. Somewhere in between somewhere in between those two things, that's what he uh, yeah. what he said. Uh, the mm. Eredivisie match between Feyenoord and FC Twente in the Kuip Stadium on Sunday was watched by 13,000 people, many of whom stood up, clustered together in groups and sang throughout the game in defiance of the KNVB's protocol. Did they sing Howie Beckett? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. I think that's the only song that's allowed to be sung in, uh, in the stadiums. Yeah. Uh, I think that's reasonable. Yeah. PSV Eindhoven's home match against Emma and the game between Ado Den Haag and Groningen also attracted criticism for fans' behavior. And asked about the scenes of supporters chanting and cheering, Rutte said, you just can't do it, it's very stupid, just shut your mouth when you're sitting there watching the game and don't yell. He was a little bit agitated, I think he just had a, he came back from a very unpleasant meeting and he was a little bit uh, cranky, I think. Uh, I think Hugo de Jong had probably updated him on the latest figures and uh, he was a bit fed up. I think so too. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think Hugo de Jonge put his feet up on the uh, on the conference table <laughs> yeah. when they did that? Hugo de Jonge kept really talking about his shoes. Yeah, that's uh, that's also yeah. something that would make me cranky. The prime minister earlier said in a g- debate in uh, June that games may have to be played behind closed doors if fans fail to abide by the rules, which were drawn up to allow games to be played in front of limited numbers of fans. Other countries, such as Italy, Germany, and England, have started the new season in empty stadiums. So yeah, that's again one of these uh, measures that are different in the Netherlands. I think it's just mm. a better solution to play these games in uh, in empty stadiums if you really want them. Uh, the KNVB said last week it was generally pleased by the way supporters had complied with the rules, even though they haven't complied with the rules, but okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Feyenoord have said extra stewards will be in place at next Sunday's home match against Ado Den Haag, which will uh, have absolutely 0% effect. Absolutely, yeah. Feyenoord against Ado is probably the game where you have least chance whatsoever of enforcing the rules, I would say. Are we going to mention the, uh, the Tilburg riots last night? Oh, yeah. Should I step in and do a sports yeah. thing? Because yeah, I do. happen to have read the article. Okay. This is the only reason I know this. <laughs> Go ahead. People are furious at the decision of the Tilburg City Council to give football fans a permit to party ahead of Thursday's night's match between the local football club and the Scottish Side Rangers. The match uh, ended in a 0-4 defeat for the home side, uh, which ended their Europa League hopes. Um, And the decision allowed a thousand fans to watch the game on a big screen. It was defended by the mayor, who said if we had not allowed it, there was a risk that supporters would have joined up together in other places in the city, which would be better because then they would be dispersed and not all in the same place. Indeed. Photos and film footage show hundreds of fans standing close together in a fenced-off area to watch the game, singing and shouting. Riot police were on standby and had to arrest six people after fireworks and beer cans were thrown at them. I think this will lead to a lot of OPEF. Yeah, for sure. As it should. And six people being arrested, again, uh, in the Dutch media is a riot. Yeah. Yes. Important to note that. <laughs> That's, That's that true. is a riot. Yeah. you got to scale down, right? <laughs> Minneapolis is a huge city. Six people being arrested is a riot. 
Paul, do we also have some Oranje news? We have. Former Dutch international Frank de Boer is set to be named the new Oranje coach, replacing Ronald Koeman, who uh, preferred Barcelona over um, Zeist. They yeah. Zeist, right? Yeah. Yes, they're based on Zeist, yeah. Can you blame him? No, I can't. No, I think Barcelona <laughs> is much more interesting than Zeist. De Boer is about to sign a contract lasting up to mid-2022 before the Qatar World Cup, but this could be extended depending on his performance at next year's European Championship. Spoiler, it won't be. No. <laughs> next week, uh, Oranje will meet Mexico in a friendly match, followed by Bosnia-Herzegovina and Italy in the Nations Cup a week later in the mysterious uh, league called the Nations Cup, which yes. nobody understands how it works, but we are playing it anyway. De Boer was the only one of the three candidates the KNVP was considering who was who was available for the job. The Telegraaf wrote, Frank Rijkaard said he did not want to return to football and Peter Bos said he wanted to respect his contract with Bayer Leverkusen. Uh, de Boer, with 112 caps for the Netherlands, was assistant coach to Bert van Marwijk when he took Oranje to the finals of the 2010 World Cup, which is still a national trauma in the Netherlands, and also booked major successes as Ajax coach between 2011 and 2014. He was most recently the coach of Atlanta United in the US, but left after a disappointing second season. Yeah, I think that the, the clue as to um, how well he's likely to do is in the fact that he was the only one of the three candidates <laughs> yeah. who was available uh, because basically yeah, he flopped at Atlanta United, having previously flopped at Inter Milan and Crystal yeah. Palace, where he was described by Jose Mourinho as the worst manager in the history <laughs> of the English Premier League. So That seems impressive. <laughs> which is, which yeah. is impressive, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and what happened to Louis van Gaal? Was, he wasn't available? He, he wants to want stay to? retired. He's having a nice time fishing and going out in this boat. He, he he promised to his wife that when he left Manchester United, he would not go back into football. So, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's the opposite of Dick. Lord, yeah, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> Much like how I feel we should solve the problem of 2020, the Netherlands is headed for the nuclear option. Economic Affairs Minister Eric Wiebes said this week that nuclear power could be a, quote, serious option in addition to wind and solar energy. During last week's all-important budget debate, MPs passed a motion calling on the government to, quote, look seriously at the business case for building new nuclear power stations. These power stations should also be built with government subsidies, as with what happens with wind and solar farms, the ruling Veve Day and Christian Democrats, who drew up the motion, said. Wednesday, Vivas responded to a report drawn up by Austrian energy research group ENCO, which found that, quote, nuclear energy, when compared to renewable energy by using the same metrics, is cheaper and able to deliver dispatchable electricity to the grid in a reliable fashion, independent of weather conditions, while having a smaller land footprint than any other source of electricity. I don't know who drew up this report, but they really could use somebody who can write better. Yeah. <laughs> But the faith of day really seemed to be pushing for nuclear uh, as we approach the elections. Yeah, the Baby Day has not published its party manifesto yet, but it seems to be making energy provision the main spearhead of its campaign. Quote, if we don't go for nuclear energy in the coming years, we might as well remove our signature from the climate goals for 2050 and the Paris Accord. MP Mark Habers told the Ade in an interview this week, the party wants to build three to ten new nuclear power stations from 2025. The Netherlands currently has one nuclear power station in Zeeland, which came online in 1973 and is scheduled for closure in 2033. The only other Dutch nuclear power station closed 
closed in 1997. But there are other nuclear facilities, right, in the Netherlands, but those are all um, research facilities, I think. Yeah, they're research facilities, not power facilities. Yeah, there's one in Delft. Yeah. There's a cute little one in Delft. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, but this wasn't the only nuclear news this week, right? It was not. <laughs> At a recycling company in Vlardinga, an old Russian nuclear submarine, the Foxtrot B-80, spent most of yesterday on fire. The boat had previously been rusting in Amsterdam for years without it being clear who exactly owned it. I guess not Russia? <laughs> At the beginning of this year, the vessel was moved to the Kochehaven to be scrapped. Demolition work was underway this morning, said a spokesperson for the fire brigade in Rymond. A fuel tank of the submarine was damaged and diesel was released. It ignited. Thick black smoke spread over the harbor, but the fire is now under control. There were no injuries and no hazardous substances, I guess, other than the diesel was released. I have a theory who the owner is. Okay. There is a story about Pepsi-Cola who wanted to sell their products in the uh, Soviet Union somewhere during the Cold War. But the only way they were allowed to do that was if they bought a number of uh, military vessels of the, oh, of, the, yeah. of the Soviet Navy, which they weren't using anymore. So they did that. Uh, that was the reason how they could you know, pay for their presence in the Soviet Union. And that turned Pepsi-Cola into the third largest naval power in the world for some mm. time. So my theory <laughs> is that they also also bought one of these nuclear Russian nuclear submarines and they then just dumped it in Amsterdam because yeah. that's what you do with that. Oh, I totally forgot about that. That's such a weird part of history, man. It is. Human remains have been found in the wreckage of a Second World War bomber being recovered from the Makamiya by contractors working for the Ministry of Defence. The BK-716 short Stirling plane was shot down on its way home from a raid over Berlin in 1943 and has lain in pieces at the bottom of the lake ever since. The families of the airmen have been petitioning the Dutch government for years to raise the wreck so they can give them a proper burial. Officially, they're still posted as missing. Last year, the government released 15 million euros to fund a programme to recover around 30 wrecks where the chances of finding human remains are thought to be high. So what do we exactly know about the crew of this plane? Uh, there were seven men on board and they all went down with the plane. Uh, five were British RAF servicemen and two were from the Royal Canadian Air Force. All young men aged between 20 and 30, some with young families. And we know that they were on board because the divers who found the first piece of wreckage brought up the parachute locks, which were still clasped shut, which meant they hadn't been deployed. Originally, this plane was thought to be another short sterling with the serial number BK-710. That's because a faded panel from the plane was wrongly identified when it was sent for forensic testing. So a lot of the campaigning to raise the wreck uh, was done by the families of the other plane, uh, the oh. plane that, what, that it wasn't. Um, Aww, yeah, that's tough. It is tough. And they even went as far as putting a monument up on Marken Island, listing the names of the crew of the BK-710 uh, with a propeller. And then, of course, about two years ago, I think, um, they realised when they found some other artefacts on the bottom of the lake that, in fact, it was this plane. So tough for one set of families, but obviously a more um, uh, pleasant twist for the families of the, of the BK-716 because it's now been positively identified based on um, a, a piece of landing gear that was recovered uh, this in the last couple of weeks. So what happens now, Gordon? They're going to carry on recovering the wreckage. It's going to take about five weeks in total. They've got two weeks to go. It's scattered over an area about 75 metres square because the plane just broke up when it hit the water. So they're going in with like a big grabbing arm and dredging the, the, the sludge, the very soft mud at the bottom of the lake. And then they basically they, they put it on a big grill, like a sieve, and let the mud all fall through. And any pieces that are left, they kind of recover and inspect. 
Once that's finished, they'll send any human remains they've found for DNA analysis, try to match it with the airman's living relatives, and then the British Ministry of Defence will be informed, um, and then decide if, when and how to arrange a reburial ceremony. And that, of course, is complicated at the moment because of corona. But it's a hugely important moment for the families who've been waiting for 75 years to find out um, what happened to their loved ones. Um, one of the people I interviewed was the 94-year-old sister of the navigator, Harry Farrington. Oh, She's still wow. alive, living in Canada, and has now, in the last two weeks, finally learnt what happened to her brother. Aww. So, And now, of course, they're hoping that somehow they'll be able to take part in um, the reburial ceremony. It's weird, man. It's, it seems like all of this is like just so far in the past, yeah. but it's, it's not. Like People no. are still alive who were dealing with this directly, sort of things directly. Exactly. That's all we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. If you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. And you can also now back us on Patreon at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl and earn yourself a free shout-out, um, especially if you live in Minneapolis, where we're building an establishing economy. <laughs> My thanks to Molly Quell and Bell Peters. I'm Gordon Derrick, and we'll be back next week. Music